Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. We're back live with another afternoon edition of Political Rewind, in part because we really want to make sure you're up to speed on all of the breaking news that continues as uh, election counts come in. And also, because we're political junkies. And, I mean, this is a time we want to be on, you know, doing our job as much as we possibly can. Uh, We have a terrific panel lined up uh, to talk with us today. I'm really pleased that GPB's uh, political reporter, Stephen Fowler, uh, could join us today. Stephen, as I've said to you in private, you've done just a remarkable job watching the election unfold, doing stories on voting, and uh, it's been a real pleasure uh, to uh, be able to take advantage of the knowledge that you've developed in this. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Well, thanks, Bill. It's been a whirlwind trying to cover everything happening, and uh Georgia is the political center of the universe, and so I can't think of a better place to be sleep-deprived. Well, I was just about to ask you, where were you in 2016? Uh, Well, uh, in the beginning of the year, I was graduating college, uh, and then I started at GPB. Okay, you did, but this is really your first full-blown presidential election, right? Right. In 2016, I ended up covering a Democratic watch party, which— has a much different mood in 2016 than it might be if there were to be one yeah. in person today. Well, yeah, I just said that because it's exciting to be able to cover one of the most consequential elections in really in, in American history is not an exaggeration. So thanks for being here. Uh, Patricia Murphy, AJC uh, reporter, political reporter, is also with us. Um, and Patricia, this is your first presidential campaign for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. How's it going? <laughs> Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you. I thought you were going to say it was also my president, my first presidential race, which it is not. <laughs> I was way out of college by 2016. <laughs> but yeah, the AJC, uh, I mean, I, I can't look- think of a better a better place to be, except perhaps GPB and doing them both at the same time is wonderful. <laughs> well, we're glad to have you. And uh, Dr. Amy Steigerwald, political science professor at Georgia State University, who was my partner on election night on GPB Radio. Uh, Amy, thank you for taking the time to be with us again this afternoon. But why wouldn't you want to continue talking about this election, right? I mean, let's be frank. This entire week, I've just given up any pretense that I'm doing anything but watching the election return. (laughs) So this is uh, exactly where I should be so I can learn from all of you. (laughs) <laughs> All right. Uh, let me uh, very quickly update you on two of the obviously big races that we're uh, watching at this hour as absentee votes continue to come in. Um, right now, in the presidential contest, uh, Joe Biden has really whittled away at Donald Trump, the lead that Donald Trump had established here from in-person voting. And as of just about uh, Ten minutes ago, the Secretary of State released new figures that show that Joe Biden is within under 14,000 votes from catching Donald Trump. So we're going to watch that very closely. And then in the David Perdue-John Ossoff race, um, I think all of you are aware that Perdue has hovered above 50 percent really since election evening, and he kept 
at that above that 50% threshold for quite some time. Right now, according to the Secretary of State, he is at 49.98% of the vote. Ossoff at 47.7. Now, if you're watching TV, cable news, when they show you the boards, they're going to show you Purdue at 50% because they're going to round up. But that two one-hundredths of a percentage means that David Purdue, if he can't not nudge that up a bit, will end up, as you uh, have heard, in a runoff with John Ossoff. Uh, so, Stephen Fowler, those races are extraordinarily close. What can you tell us at this point? I know you're down at the Capitol now. The Secretary of State is going to do another news conference. Help us understand where we stand with uh, votes outstanding across the state right now. Right. So this morning when we woke up, there were still ballots to be counted. Uh, at this moment, there are still ballots to be counted, really from three buckets. There are some ballots that came in on time that officials have scanned and checked to make sure that there were no problems, but they haven't yet put them into the counter to be able to have those results tabulated. Then there's a bucket that just haven't been opened and been processed yet. And a third is ballots that had issues that need to be adjudicated and reviewed by uh, humans. We started off this morning with about 61,000 of those left. And we are down below 50,000 at this point, still with some ballots in Fulton County, especially, and Chatham County left to come in. And so, you know, looking at the math, there are more ballots from these absentee ballots left to count than the margin in the presidential race, which is why you haven't seen anyone call. And in addition to these ballots, the absentee ballots that we know about, Counties still have a couple days to process uh, provisional ballots, absentee ballots that were rejected, that needed curing, and military and overseas ballots. So there are still more votes to be counted out there, which is why things are so close and everyone's just uh, on tenterhooks, really. Do we have any reason to believe that any county had an unusual number of provisional ballots that need to be cured by Friday, uh, which would indicate uh, a closer scrutiny, perhaps, uh, that some people might uh, be a little concerned about? Or has provisional balloting not been an issue this time around? We don't really know too much about provisional ballots yet because those aren't reported directly to the state in the same way as the regular votes, um, absentee election day and things like that. DeKalb County, for example, has said they finished processing all of their absentee ballots but they still have about 3,000 military, overseas, provisional, and potentially cured ballots that they have to process through. And they're one of the bigger counties in the state, so kind of take that percentage and spread it out across the 159 counties. So usually maybe, you know, uh, 10 to 20,000 provisional ballots might be what we're looking at, but not all of them will be cured in time. Yeah. Um, Patricia, I, the Secretary of State or, or the Secretary of State's office had a news conference late this morning, and uh, listed the number of uh, votes that were still outstanding and the counties in which they were uh, not yet uh, counted or, or at least processed, and uh, the results given to all of us. And um, it, the the bulk of them were in in Democratic counties, but I think and Stephen. Check me on this. Forsyth was one that had a fairly substantial number of votes outstanding at this point. Am I right? It was Forsyth. It was a, a Republican county. I know that. Yeah, Forsyth is a Republican county that still has some outstanding votes, but 
one of the reasons that this race has become so close. And one of the deciding factors is that the absentee mail-in ballots that will be processed tend to be more democratic, even in some of these right. uh, deep red counties. Just what I was going to talk to Patricia about. It's interesting, Patricia, because we can already say that in places like Fulton, Chatham County, uh, I don't know about Richmond at this point, but the Democratic strongholds, um, there's good reason to believe that 80 percent of the remaining votes could be Democratic votes. But as Stephen just said, even in Republican counties, the mail-in ballots have tended to be Republican, Patricia. I mean, I'm sorry, Biden votes. Are you on mute, Patricia? Unmute your phone. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yes. Um, I, I thought one of the most interesting metrics on election night coming out of the exit polls were that Democrats overwhelmingly felt that the coronavirus was more serious and was, in fact, their number one issue in some cases, in many cases. And Republicans took the uh, coronavirus less seriously, and it was way down on their list of important issues. So um, I don't know if you can extrapolate too much from that. I do think the pandemic plays a big role in people's choice to cast these early votes um, and to do them absentee. If anybody is older or uh, immunocompromised or simply does not want to be in a room with crowds of people, this is the option that was provided to them. And I think um, because we saw this overwhelming number, um, unprecedented number of early votes, um, I believe that the the COVID uh, crisis played a big factor in that and that Democrats um, their behavior has been influenced by that. Uh, we are, we'll see lots more studies and, and uh, data behind that. But um, I think that that might be part of what's going on here. Amy, as you look at what's outstanding out there, when you look at the way the vote is narrowing between uh, Biden and uh, Trump, just give us your take on all this. I think it's precisely, I mean, the, what, we, what we're seeing happening is these outstanding votes coming in, and they're, the ones that are left are in the more populous counties, which currently seem to be trending uh, definitely more cons- uh, towards Biden's side. And the mail-in ballots are matching up with the votes, if not sort of exceeding it in that hence. I mean, one of the things that I saw um, that somebody was reporting out last night was that, for example, the... Um, day of votes in Gilmer County, which is sort of up near LJ, mm-hmm. um, was actually 82-15 for Trump, but the mail-in ballots were 63-36, um, only towards Trump. So we're really seeing that that you, that even within the mail-in ballots, they are just they're more so than normal, even in the red counties, which is why like the Forsyth numbers might seem surprising to some people that those late coming ballots, even though Forsyth is definitely more Republican, are coming in and are more Democratic. So I. My guess is that we're going to see a difference between the two candidates of a couple thousand and be entering into recount territory. You know, uh, Patricia, uh, we knew about a week ago when uh, and more than that, actually, when Joe Biden scheduled a visit to Warm Springs and to Atlanta, uh, when Kamala Harris came here twice uh, between uh, the second debate and Election Day, when President Trump came here on the Sunday before the election and then Barack Obama on the night before, we knew that both of those campaigns had some inkling that the universe of voting in Georgia had changed dramatically. I mean, both campaigns must have seen internal polls 
that uh, showed them they'd better get their act together here. And now we're seeing that play out. They saw that Georgia was really on the verge of becoming a blue state, if not from now on in perpetuity, perhaps for this election. Yes, definitely. And I know that Democrats have uh, had Georgia on their radar since the results came in in 2018 and the 6th District flipped uh, for Lucy McBath and the 7th District came within 500 votes for Carolyn Bordeaux. And because those um, and also, of course, Gwinnett County and Cobb County, those such long Republican dominated strongholds both flipped to the Democrats in 2016. And so the the data has been going in the direction of the Democrats' favor for some time. And in 2018, it was really starting to yield meaningful results at the ballot box. And um, so Democrats have, have wanted to get a toehold in here. Uh, Joe Biden also happened to perform extremely well uh, with minority communities in South Carolina and in the Georgia primaries that uh, told them that in November, this would be a state that could could be a really important pickoff. Obviously, in 2015, also 2016, rather, um, Donald Trump won by five points, but that was Democrats' narrowest loss um, in a battleground state. And so they've they've been wanting to pick off Georgia. It does feel like the dynamics of everything has accelerated the change that we all knew was coming and uh, really gave them the impetus to really start to pour in the resources of time and money and those important surrogates and visits to just push it that much faster and harder. And and the results are completely showing up uh, today. Yeah, and and we will certainly... Stephen, do we imagine we're going to see everything done by tonight in Georgia? What's, what's, what are they telling you? Well, the, the, the two biggest question marks are Fulton and Chatham. Those are the two counties that have the biggest, uh, biggest piles of ballots left to report. And I just saw before we got on the air that Fulton has processed all of their absentee ballots. Now they just have to go through the process of scanning them and uploading them. So Fulton hit a milestone after working well into the night at State Farm Arena where they've been processing things. And Chatham is also working through their ballots. But uh, at at this point, without the pre-processing that most of the ballots done beforehand, it looks like we're getting through some counties are getting through, you know, a thousand or so ballots an hour. And, uh, you know, we should. As more results come in, things become closer and closer and closer. But like Amy said, you know, it's probably likely that whoever wins, whether it's Biden or Trump, after all of these ballots come in, they would only be ahead by, you know, 3,000 votes at most before you get to the provisionals. And so it's, you know, all we know is that it's going to be tight. Take us behind the curtain just for a moment, because all of these terms, I think, are interesting to uh to uh, unpack. Um, When you say they've now completed processing, that's the very first step of handling an absentee ballot, right? Right. So, you know, you submit your absentee ballot, you vote on it, you put it inside an envelope, then inside another envelope and put it in the mail or a Dropbox or, you know, hand deliver it to your county office. When the county gets it, they have to do several things to track it and get it ready for the vote counting. You know, they have to get rid of the outside envelope because, 
your vote is secret and they're not, you know, tracking your name with your votes. They've got to check to make sure that the signature is valid on the outside. They've got to make sure that, you know, the ballots aren't damaged or, you know, there's no sort of issues there. And they've got to basically get them prepared to be put into a scanner. And once the ballots are scanned, uh, if there's no issues, it's scanned and they, you know, process it and move on. But sometimes people don't fill in the ovals all the way or there's an, an ink stain on it or somebody spilled coffee on it. And it's got to be set aside for uh, county workers to do something more with it. So it's not exactly a fast process. And this morning at the Secretary of State's press conference, uh, Gabe Sterling, who's the statewide voting system implementation manager, said that fast is great, but accurate is better. And so they have been really pushing that um, accuracy is important and really reminding people that this is what happens every single election, whether it's, you know, a local mayor's race or race for the president of the United States, that it takes time to it, count every vote. You just absolutely made a point that I was going to ask Amy Steigerwald about. Amy, across the country, the Trump campaign is filing lawsuits in uh, many different jurisdictions uh, because they uh, they want to stop uh, voting. Uh, they are suspicious of the fact it's taking so long to count uh, ballots, whatever. But Stephen just made the point. The reality is this is what happens in a democracy. This is how votes are processed and handled. Despite the propaganda, there is nothing, at least in this election, and we've had problems in the past, but in this election, it's all running pretty darn smoothly considering the volume of votes that were cast in Georgia this uh, this election. Most decidedly. I mean, I think one of the things that people don't realize is that what we think of as being officially called for certain states on election night are projections done by news organizations. There is nothing formal or official about those. It used to be they were based on exit polls. Then there were a lot of problems that happened in 2000, which those of us who, you know, were also maybe not even in college in 2000, remember. Um, and so that's why we stopped doing on exit polls. Now they do it based on ballots. And this year in particular, we knew that there was going to be a longer delay because of absentee ballots and also because states set when they will start opening, processing, and then actually counting absentee ballots. One of the big things that Georgia did, and I give a lot of credit to the Georgia Board of Education, or Board of Education, Board of Elections on this, is that they changed the date by when they could start processing and scanning to a couple weeks ago. It used to be 8 a.m. on Election Day. They weren't allowed to start until then. One of the things that we are seeing, particularly in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, is that they were not allowed to start processing the ballots until Election Day. And in at least seven counties in Pennsylvania, not until either yesterday or even today. So in part, we're not seeing those results because they weren't allowed to do anything with them. And so we're having to bring that in. Um, I think the other part of it is that I think is notable about the lawsuits that we're seeing is that there has to be something that you can point to that is a harm, right? And the harm is not I'm losing. The harm is that something has been done which is undermining or against what the law says. And with basically all of the lawsuits that have been filed so far, including the one in Chatham County, the ones that have been filed in Nevada, in Michigan, they've all been dismissed pretty quickly because there really is not 
any indications that there's been um, election officials are not following what the stated laws are in the states. Yeah, and Patricia, I want to talk about that Chatham County case. Uh, That is one of the places where the Trump campaign and the state Republican Party uh, went before Superior Court Judge James Bass. They, their argument was that two election workers in Chatham County, two Republican, I think, election watchers, um, uh, noticed that uh, uh, election workers had put on the stack of votes to be counted ballots that had come in after 7 p.m., which would make them uh, render them uh, 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 unusable, uh, uncountable, um, and uh, and and and. The judge immediately dismissed it. He dismissed it in a summary uh, argument. He didn't even have to say much. He just said, I don't think there's any uh, reason for this. And let's just listen to uh, one of the defense lawyers uh, respond to uh, the very issue that um, Amy just brought up. And the testimony that the court has heard today is the utterly unpersuasive testimony from two witnesses who testify that they saw people counting absentee ballots which is what they're supposed to be doing. And both of those witnesses, when they were asked on cross-examination, can you say whether those absentee ballots that you saw someone counting, whether they were received after 7 p.m.? And both of them said they had no idea. So, uh, Patricia, just one of the lawsuits that the Trump campaign seems to be firing off almost at random uh, maybe more to make a political point for their base than to have anything really adjudicated. Uh, yes. Uh, when the judge dismissed that suit, uh, the words he used were no evidence. There's just no evidence at all of what <laughs> was being alleged, that they were mixing processed and unprocessed ballots. Um, and we heard, I think the reason to be skeptical of a number of these legal claims is that we heard ahead of time, ahead of the election, that uh, the Trump legal team was preparing to sue anywhere and everywhere necessary, um, which there have always been legal challenges in elections, but uh, this has always been a White House and a president. There are more litigious than most. And uh, certainly the ability to file a lawsuit and to cast doubt on the results uh, in the states where the elections are close, um, I think that is a way to cast doubt on the election results themselves. Um, and it's uh, it's very important to follow these cases very closely and hear the results very specifically and find out exactly what is being alleged. These were 53 votes in question. Even if it had been true, it would have made no difference, but there was no evidence at all that these allegations were true. Um, it's always important to have poll watchers and to raise questions and even to file complaints if necessary, but then to always follow those through. And really, for, I think it's important for Uh, the media to follow those all the way through as well and report on them in detail about why they've been dismissed, that they have been dismissed and why they've been dismissed so that voters can have confidence in these election results. So, Stephen, we do want to point out that it is certainly the right of a campaign to sue when they believe that there is wrongful activity. In fact, they should sue if they actually have evidence of wrongful activity in, in, in election, in whatever aspect of an election. Uh, but the president has been, and I don't think you have to be partisan to say that the notion that the president is encouraging uh, uh, states to stop counting votes is antithetical to what our democracy is all about. I mean, it's really, it's really kind of staggering, 
uh, Stephen, to watch this unfold. Right. And so what's important to note about the Savannah-Chatham County lawsuit and uh, is that unlike what you've seen in other places, on its surface, this was a specific minor election law violation. Um, you know, they weren't trying to get everyone to stop counting all the votes that weren't already counted and different things like that. But it stems from kind of the president's and the public's lack of understanding about how votes are counted and about how uh, things work. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's hard because on the surface, you know, yeah, we don't want to mix in absentee ballots that aren't supposed to be there, but it has the effect of kind of undermining the election. And a quick note about Chatham, uh, our colleague Emily Jones in Savannah just told me that the Chatham County Elections Office says they will not be done processing all of their outstanding absentee ballots until tomorrow at the earliest. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so we are still going to wait for quite a while. By the way, Stephen, as long as the ball's in your court, uh, if the one other thing that could happen here in this race, almost certainly will happen, is uh, whatever the margin is for the winner in this race, it's probably it is very likely it will meet the threshold for a recount in Georgia, won't it? That's right. So Georgia law for the recount, a candidate has to be within half a percentage point. That's 0.5 percent sign. And uh, in the race that we're looking at right now, that would be about 20 or so thousand votes, which we're definitely probably going to have a margin tighter than that. So but the, the timing of the recount. So just a quick primer on what happens next. Counties process absentee ballots, counties process provisionals and military and overseas. Next week, every county is doing a statewide risk-limiting audit where they are going to audit to see if the correct person won one of the races. It hasn't been identified yet. Then counties have to certify their election results by November 13th. Then after that, the state has to certify things by the 20th. And only after the state certifies on the 20th will we have the recount happening. So a recount won't happen until the end of this month at the earliest. Democracy is a really time-consuming process, Stephen. Let's do this. Let's take our first break in the show and come back. Let's talk about the Senate races. Uh, That's going to be interesting to watch. Uh, You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. GPB Stephen Fowler, the AJC's Patricia Murphy, and GSU's Dr. Amy Steigerwald, all with us on this special live edition of Political Rewind. By the way, a quick note, the uh, Secretary of State of Pennsylvania, Kathy Bukvar, just told CNN uh, a little while before we went on the air, they have about 500,000 outstanding ballots that are still being counted. She actually says she thinks that they're going to get to a conclusion Uh, by the end of the night, which is really kind of uh, staggering to imagine. And if that happens, Patricia, uh, Joe Biden is all but assured of being uh, 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 the president-elect of the United States, yes? If he wins, 
Pennsylvania, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's, I'm sorry. That's what yeah. I, I'm sorry. I should have added <laughs> sorry, that little note. <laughs> yes, that is a nice big bucket of uh, that's a nice big bucket of electoral votes, and that would put him over the top. Um, it also would take a ton of pressure off of these other states. I think pe- I think these states yeah. are really reluctant to be the state that makes the difference uh, for fear of having to go back on that call. So I think we're seeing these states be extra, extra, extra careful so that if they're the ones that put you over the finish line, um, you know, they don't have to go back on that. It reminds me of uh, advice that Mitch McConnell gives to his senators to never be the 51st vote. He's like, you don't want to break the tie. Just do it early or do it late. But being the, being, making the difference is a lot of pressure. Uh, just to get in the drone, uh, uh, Amy, and pull the camera back from Georgia and look at uh, the United States, w- really, we're down to the country's down to looking at three states Georgia, well, four Georgia, Nevada, Arizona, and Pennsylvania. I mean, we're in a very elite group of states. And one of the things, uh, Amy, the Biden campaign apparently is nervous about, they would like to, they are hoping they can win all of those states. It, it, it's sort of what Patricia was getting at, I think, because they don't we nobody wants to have one state that everybody can focus like Florida in 2000, all the legal firepower on. Right. Definitely. I mean, so I think what is, you know, the Biden camp is probably at this point. Right. Everybody's anxious, but they're feeling a little bit more reassured because they've got a lot of paths here. Right. They're already at 253. Um, we have the fact that sort of there's a just, you know, some of the places have called Arizona, some have not. So we're sort of going in and back and forth on that as to whether it's 253 or 264. But Biden is very close. Um, Trump, on the other hand, basically has to win all of the states that you just mentioned in order to actually win the presidency. Um, And so there is, so the ones that would be sort of more helpful on some level, right, that would sort of put it over again, right? So Pennsylvania, right? If, If in fact Biden takes Pennsylvania, then we don't have to worry about sort of all the rest of them and take a little bit more time. But I think that is partly what we're seeing in this is sort of differences of where the race is leading and also how many avenues there are to get to that magic number of 270. So, uh, Stephen, let's turn to the Senate races and and first Senate race number one, because that's the one that is still in play. We know that Kelly Leffler and Raphael Warnock have already secured prime uh, runoffs in uh, in in that race. Number two runoff uh, positions with Purdue at now forty nine nine eight and an awful lot of we think Democratic ballots left to be counted. His chances of escaping without a runoff are probably diminishing. Is that fair to say, do you think, Stephen? Yeah, I mean, I I think that's fair to say because, you know, with the way the math works, I mean, it would take, you know, uh, several big Republican counties or Republican batches of votes to come in and and votes really aren't segregated like that, especially with the counties we having remaining, you know, like Fulton and DeKalb or, or excuse me, Chatham. And so it's looking like and there's still a third candidate in the race, which is part of the reason it's going to a runoff. And so it is increasingly looking like both of our Senate seats are going to be up for grabs on January 5th. And we're going to have I believe it's 60 days from now. We're going to have that kind of uh, that kind of dual Senate showdown. Can't wait. Looking forward to the holidays, aren't you, Patricia? (laughs) 
<laughs> You'll be out there. I mean, you know, Patricia, what do you make of the of uh, uh, either of those races? I want you to weigh in as you'd like on either Leffler and uh, Warnock or uh, uh, David Perdue and John Ossoff. Well, of course, I would weigh in on both of them. I think uh, my favorite well, race go this ahead. whole time has been that special election um, that has now come down to uh, Warnock and um, Senator Leffler. Uh, Senator Leffler had to go so far to the right to get to the right of Doug Collins, which was not really a, a superhuman feat to get to the right of Doug Collins on anything. And uh, Leffler's camp decided that they needed to do that in order to beat him out on the Republican vote. That looked like that has now looked like a good strategy uh, for that portion of the race. And now it's going to be up to her to win over the rest of not the rest of the electorate, but a majority of the electorate uh, to to go up against Raphael Warnock. Um, it's such a stunning contrast between those two. They are so different from each other. Their politics are different. Their approaches are different. Um, it's going to be a wildly expensive and I think eventually extremely negative race. And um, I think it'll be uh, uh, it'll be fascinating to watch and a real test of what kind of a battleground is Georgia now, what decision do voters make on a race like that. Um, and then when you look over at the Purdue-Ossoff race, both of those men have been in runoffs. Uh, Purdue ran against Kingston in the Republican primary runoff in 2014, and Ossoff, of course, had to run against Karen Handel in that 2017 runoff um, and eventually lost that runoff after winning on election night. Um, the numbers that jump out at me in that race are that David Perdue outperformed President Trump by about 900 votes. Mm -hmm. And if you look right now, mm -hmm. Ossoff has underperformed Joe Biden by about 90,000 votes. And that, to me, makes a difference when you're talking about a standalone race. So it'll be those are I'm going to look to fill in that information as this race goes on. Um, Amy Steigerwald, as long as we're talking about under or overperforming um, in that race number two, uh, I understand that it was a 20-person race. I get the fact that there were other Democrats uh, who were on the ballot, but Warnock uh, got 32% of the vote, and that truly is uh, just in and of itself underperforming. He's going to have to really uh, work to uh, uh, build up his votes uh, when he gets to the runoff, isn't he? Um, I think so. I mean, I think we can look at this for both ways. Number one, there are sort of a lot of outstanding votes there that one would presume that he's going to um, be able to pick up such as those that were given for um, Mayor Deborah Jackson, who had a great night, let's just say, because she was uh, the one sort of next line of mm -hmm. Collins and got almost 7% of the vote. Um, you got the Matt Lieberman vote, um, things like that. Um, the other part of it, which if I was Kelly Leffler, that I would be a little bit concerned about, is that Leffler plus Collins was not, in fact, a majority, right? So we didn't see also, so we would imagine that they're going to pick them up, but I think they're going to have right, some issues to come in and you know, as Patricia really sort of nicely encapsulated that you've got Leffler ran incredibly to the right um, in sort of it's going to be difficult to come back and now make a broader pitch. Um, one of the things that, for example, I'm going to be interested in, especially given the people that like I know, which is a lot of like the legal community, um, Leffler 
what upset a lot of people with the attacks um, against Collins, particularly about uh, criminal justice and his work um, defending especially indigent criminal defendants. Um, and so those are going to be some interesting places where it's going to be hard, I think, to maybe rebuild those relationships and convince um, those who supported Collins to also support her, plus to broaden it out past just simply those who voted for one of the two major Republican candidates. Stephen, can we talk about race number one for a minute, since we are still waiting to uh, hear whether there is going to be a runoff? Uh, the Purdue campaign uh, today put out a statement saying uh, that um, they put out two statements, basically. Well, there's one statement with two different uh, uh, comments that I'd like to read. There's one thing we know for sure. Senator David Perdue will be, a re- will be reelected to the United States Senate, and Republicans will defend the majority. But it also then said, if overtime is required, when all of the votes have been counted, we're ready and we will win. So they recognize that the outstanding votes are not likely to give them an outright victory. Right. I mean, you know, when you look at it, um, it's like they're pragmatic. You know, campaigns are pragmatic. You know, nobody's going to throw in the towel until the last votes are counted or until the margin or the ratio is something that can't be surpassed. And so um, it's going to be interesting to see because there's not really going to be a pivot in that race. You know, John Ossoff has kind of staked his claim as this young progressive upstart that's going to clean out corruption and uh, root out, you know, wrongdoing and be for the people. And uh, David Perdue has pitched himself as a successful six-year member of the Senate that has done a lot for the economy and done a lot for health care. And um, lately he's tied his fortunes a little bit more to President Trump but if Joe Biden ends up being in the White House uh, and winning in these last 60 days where we've got a president-elect Biden, it'll be interesting to see how Purdue's campaign pivots back towards his economic message and uh, not necessarily having to worry about being joined to the hip with Trump. You know, Patricia, Stephen makes a really interesting point. Uh, because the uh, Ossoff-Purdue race operated much more like a traditional general election campaign where David Perdue tried to find a message that might make him palatable, acceptable to more moderate voters. Uh, Kelly Leffler couldn't afford to do that because of uh, Doug Collins being her uh, opponent in what was essentially a Republican primary within the jungle race. Uh, so it, it's interesting. They, they'll, I mean, they'll, the attacks on, on one another will probably grow even more and more savage. But we're going to see a very similar race playing out probably to what we've already seen between the two of them. Yes. I think so. I think it will certainly also get very nationalized. Um, Not that it isn't already being played out on national issues, but if the control of the Senate literally comes down to these two Senate races, these races are going to matter to everybody in the country, and it will be seen as a referendum on whoever wins the White House. And it will either be um, you know, Republicans, if Biden wins, it would be Republicans check on a Biden administration. And if 
the president wins, uh, it'll be the same. It'll be seen as a way to give a final rebuke to the president and to to tap the brakes on his administration. So I think both of these races are going to be really overwhelmed by outside events. And what happens in the next week in the country is going to really influence how those campaigns operate over the next um, five or six weeks. Amy? No, I totally agree with that. Um, the other thing that I think we might see is not only be nationalized, but maybe some other players coming into it. So, for example, Mitch McConnell has made statements about uh, the type of cabinet appointees that would be able to get through a Republican-controlled Senate. Um, he made comments about that this morning. Um, that's going to, again, make it be that sort of putting that on, I think, the recent um, nomination and confirmation of uh, our newest justice, Amy Coney Barrett, is also going to be on there. We have um, a number of the justices are, in fact, right, elderly. Justice Breyer is 87. Um, and so at some point, there is going to be replacements there. And so I think that these are issues that are going to that are that are tapping into other things that are going on. But many of them, the path is through the Senate. Right. We haven't seen a lot happening. The House has been terribly active in Washington. The Senate has not. Um, and the idea that it would be even less active if there is a President Biden, I think, is something that people will really want to um, that Democratic voters will be pushed by, whereas Republicans will want to stop. Let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. When we come back, let's talk about those two suburban uh, House races, uh, six and seven, uh, and how they have come out at this point. You're listening to Political Rewind. Stephen Fowler in U.S. House District Number 6, which, of course, is the Northwest Metro suburban area, uh, incumbent Lucy McBath beat Karen Handel by about nine points. Uh, Karen Handel did, in fact, uh, concede, and uh, she shut down her social media almost immediately, uh, probably uh, because for the time being she wants to get out of the spotlight. Let's just listen, and, and I'm going to play it for a reason and ask you about it, Stephen. Let's listen to a little bit of the uh, video that Lucy McBath released after Karen Handel conceded the race. Every single day, I thank God for allowing me to do this work serving my neighbors in Georgia 6th. Because as those in Washington work to divide and tear our communities apart, it is necessary more than ever to have strong leaders fighting to bring us together. You've shown that when you send a mom on a mission to Washington, we get results. So that's Lucy McCraft. Stephen, I played that for a reason, and, and I'd like your reaction to it, uh, my observation. Lucy McBath is one of the most on-message political candidates that I have heard. And she really knows what her message is. She knows how to tell a story uh, uh, about herself and why she wanted to be in Congress. And... Um, I just find it interesting that she is has become really good at doing just that. Now, that doesn't have anything to do with whether you agree with her policies, disagree, whether you think she's been a great member of Congress. I'm talking now about the simple idea of how you get your story across. Am I making sense? Yeah, no, I, I think that makes total sense. When you 
when you look at uh, high-profile congressional representatives in Georgia and uh, across the country, uh, many of the ones that stand out do have this sort of brand or this identity or this message. Um, you know, Georgia's 6th Congressional District, I think, is one of, if not the most uh, college-educated districts in the country. And so it, it's not necessarily that McBath is catering her story and her appearance to her district, but it's something that resonates with people in a way kind of similar, but in a very different way to the way Marjorie Taylor Greene's campaign message and persona resonated very much with the 14th district. I am I am by no uh, means comparing yeah. the two of them in the same way, but in the sense of, you know, you uh, too often you find, uh, too often you can find politicians that become caricatures of the, di- uh, of the district that they represent or caricatures of the issues that they campaign on. But I think one thing Lucy McBath has refined in her time in the House so far is who Lucy McBath is. And when she spoke at the Democrats Get Out the Vote campaign rally, uh, the Get Out the Vote campaign rally with President Obama Monday, what you heard from McBath and some of the other Democratic politicians were, yes, get out the vote. But they delved more into the personal stories that make people feel like that there is an actual human being representing them in office instead of uh, a campaign check. There you go. And by the way, and of course, Lucy McBath has a very compelling and unfortunately very sad story about her son. Uh, Patricia, uh, as long as we're mentioning Marjorie Taylor Greene, she has a distinction as perhaps the first congressman elect to have had tweets banned on Twitter throughout the day uh, because she has been spreading misinformation about the way in which Democrats are cheating their way to victory. Yes, well, she does join the president in that distinction, so she's got well, yes. <laughs> she's managing up in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, but yes, I am going to be so interested to see how Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, how she, uh, where she fits in into the Republican caucus in Washington, um, even though there are a number of very, very conservative lawmakers, it's still a kind of a traditional bunch of uh, mostly men. Um, and they're, they have uh, decorum and rules, and uh, they did uh, kick Stephen King off of his committee assignments um, after he made a number of incendiary statements. So I'll be really interested to see what being in Congress does to um, modify at all Marjorie Taylor Greene's message and her style. Um, right now, it's frankly not a great fit for the sitting members of Congress. It makes them uncomfortable. Um, they don't want to answer about it. They don't want to talk about it. They w- don't want to act like it's happening. Um, it, I'll I'll be really interested to see what happens when she gets up there. Another new member is going to be Andrew Clyde, who was uh, taking over um, yep. for Congressman uh, Doug Collins. Uh, he's very, very conservative. Um, he's a former, uh, he's a Navy veteran, a gun store, not just a gun store owner. He has a huge gun munitions contracting business, actually, that has a lot of federal and uh, state contracts across the country. Um, quite conservative, much more uh, soft-spoken and, and uh, low-key than Marjorie Taylor Greene, but, but quite conservative as well. And he'll be somebody I'll follow with a lot of interest in his, in his career. Well, I mean, you covered the Hill, and you know the characters quite well. Uh, so uh, I'll be interested in uh, your perspective as uh, that all moves forward when they all get up there. Uh, Amy, let's talk about the 7th for a couple minutes. Uh, Carolyn Bordeaux, 
uh, has already claimed essentially victory, the Democrat, in that race against uh, Rich McCormick. She said she's going to win. Um, I'm looking at the votes now. Uh, I'm not very good at math. Uh, it's about eight plus thousand uh, votes uh, separating Bordeaux from McCormick with Bordeaux in the lead, of course. Um, McCormick refuses to concede. He says he still has a path to victory. Uh, what do you see in that race? Um, so I think she's actually moved ahead a bit more than that. She's actually ahead by about 14,000 um, at this moment. And, I mean, it's a it's a more solid sort of 5% lead. Now, it could change. We're, we're still waiting for um, some sort of final to come in from Forsyth. Those have definitely trended about 2 to 1 for McCormick, but it's a lot less votes. Um, we're still waiting also for votes from Gwinnett. They um, have had technical difficulties, which is one of the reasons why their ballots are outstanding. Um, it's, again, sort of two to one on her side, but you're talking uh, proportionally a lot more people. And so it does seem um, there would have to be a lot that would have to happen for McCormick to be able to win or to even get this close enough to request um, a recount. And so while I don't normally make any type of, you know, things, I'm, I have to admit that personally, I'm sort of excited to see a professor from Georgia State University potentially becoming uh, one of the next members of Congress from the United or from Georgia. Oh, we don't have a great deal of time to talk about this because we're really down to about the last three minutes of the show. But, you know, Stephen, I, it's interesting to me that uh, this morning on Political Rewind, we talked about the fact that um, especially in the Georgia House, the Democratic effort to try to gain control of the House not only failed, but it failed miserably. They'd only picked up one seat against the Republican majority. And, and Jen Jordan, uh, who is, you know, nothing if not passionate about her side, argued that one of the reasons for that was the pandemic. Democrats paid more attention, respected the pandemic, didn't get out and uh, go door-to-door campaigning, didn't hold rallies. And I bring that up because Patricia, at the very beginning of the show, talked about the impact of the pandemic on this whole election. Jen Jordan would argue that's one of the reasons Democrats fared so poorly. They also were outspent by vast margins, right? Yeah. I, I mean, there. I guess there will be plenty of think pieces launched in the coming weeks about what happened with the State House and the Senate. One suggestion that I've heard early is that potentially, you know, President Trump was a GOP aberration. So there might be more people that voted uh, for Joe Biden and then Republican down the ticket. Um, but, you know, really at the local level, it's about money, but it's also about a ground game. And so when there's not really door knocking happening because uh, they're a pandemic, it'll be hard to get people to uh, flip those seats. Okay. And, and Stephen, I'm going to interrupt. I'm not interrupting you, but I almost did uh, because I can hear you are walking toward the Capitol right now because you're going to cover <laughs> that three o'clock uh, news conference uh, for GPB uh, News, which we're going to carry on the radio. And um, I think we're also going to carry it on GPB TV. So, Stephen, I'll let you hustle on up to the Capitol and thank Thank you. Not TV. Uh, um, Emily Brock just told me not TV, but it will be on radio. Stephen, thank you so much for being with us. Amy Steigerwald, you've been terrific throughout this week being part of our coverage. And you know we always invite you to be a part of the Political Rewind team. Patricia Murphy, you as well. Uh, Have a great time. 
in the next stages of this race, covering it from the AJC. And we'll see you back on Political Rewind in the weeks ahead as well. Thank you, Amelia Brock. Thank you, Sam Burmis-Dawes. Thank you also to Jake Troyer, who's our engineer this afternoon. I'm Bill Nugget. We'll be back tomorrow. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, and please go get a flu shot. Goodbye, everybody.